Hey everyone, this is Cobain the Christian. Today we're going to be talking about the nature of the fundamental arc of biblical history. But more than that, because the Bible is the exegesis and interpretation of the real and true world, we are talking about the fundamental structure and narrative arc of the history of the human family, and through the human family, the history of the entire creation as it is summed up and united in Christ. Before I do that, I want to thank everybody who has subscribed, who has watched, and especially those who have become patrons. As I mentioned in my last video, uh, the Patreon medium is really essential uh, for the, uh, if, if I'm to invest the amount of time that I want to invest into keeping up this channel and making videos almost daily. Uh, so if you are financially able and haven't done so already, please consider becoming a, pat a patron. But if you like this content, make sure to at least like, subscribe, and share it with those whom you think might be interested. So with that said, let's talk about the nature of the question. The nature of the question concerns what the center of Christianity fundamentally is. But before we address that, we have to be clear about what we mean by the term Christianity. Because when, while a lot of people throw around terms like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Sikhism, or most problematically, religion, quote unquote, I'm not sure that most people are consciously aware of what they mean by these words. And if you're not consciously aware of what you mean by a particular load-bearing term, that is a term that has a high degree of relative importance in structuring your opinion on something, then you are much more likely to make accidental logical errors concerning its veracity or internal coherence. We have to always know what we mean. And so when I say Christianity, what I mean is the interpretive paradigm which purports to shed light on all reality, which sees the story of the world as being centered on the incarnate Jesus Christ as the only begotten eternal Son of the Father for whom the world was made and in whom the world is glorified. And that glorification takes place through his taking on human nature and his uh, lifting up of that human nature to participation in divine glory, climaxing in his resurrection and ascension from the dead. But I want to emphasize those words interpretive paradigm or interpretive grammar of reality. Because when I we speak of Christianity, we are not merely talking about a particular set of creedal claims. Rather, we're talking about a question which pertains to literally everything that exists. Because intrinsic to the Christian confession is the idea that the creation only exists by the will of God, not just his will to create it in the past, but his constant and conscious continuing will to hold it in existence. Because existence itself, when one unpacks the inner essence of that concept, turns out to pertain to that sort of life which is had intrinsically and necessarily only by God, who exists as father of the only begotten son, whom he loves by the Holy Spirit. So existence itself, what it means for a thing to be, has its source in that Trinitarian life of God, the very life which is shared with the human family and through the human family to all creation. Now, when we think of the Christian story of the world, at least when most people think about it or, at, or are asked about it, I think the first 
feature of that story that we gravitate to is salvation. Christianity is thought to be a theological explanation of how God in history forgave humanity its sins. Now, in everything that I'm going to say, I do not want to diminish the absolutely central importance of that feature. The notion of forgiveness is something without which Christianity would not be Christianity and without which the Christian spiritual life would become toxic. So forgiveness is fundamental to the Christian confession. Nevertheless, I do want to say, and I'm going to carefully qualify this statement, so don't just react against it based on one sentence. Make sure you listen through to understand what I mean. However, I'm going to say forgiveness, pardon from sin, is not the center of the divine economy. And by divine economy, I mean God's management of the world in its creation, redemption, and final glorification. Instead of redemption from sin being the heart of the Christian narrative of the world, I am going to suggest to you that it is instead the principal subplot. The main plot, as it were, is not redemption from something that went wrong. Rather, the main plot is intelligible even if nothing ever went wrong. After all, God is he in whom everything which it means for things to exist is summed up, and sin, in its very definition, in the nature of the concept, is a corruption on existence. It piggybacks illegitimately on divine existence and divine perfection. There is no such thing as sin or evil in and of itself. Even a person, as C.S. Lewis points out, who does the most heinous conceivable acts like torturing children does not do so for their own sake. Rather, they do them to achieve pleasure. And pleasure, even though it is in this case being achieved heinously in an evil way, pleasure is an intrinsic good. The psalmist says, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. The New Testament speaks frequently of our joy in the Lord. And after all, in the world to come, where there is no suffering, our whole existence will be suffused by an ecstatic joy and delight in the presence of God. So evil has no existence in and of itself. And because of that, the story of creation and the nature of God must, in principle, be intelligible even if we never mention sin or evil. Sin and evil are contingent realities. The principle end of God's creation of the world, of his work in history, which is called here the divine economy, and the center of the biblical and human stories is the glorification of the world or put in other terms, the perfection of the world. Now, perfection does not mean in this context the correcting of a flaw. Rather, perfection means the bringing of a particular thing to the fullness of what it ought to be. So, take human nature. What does it mean for human nature to be perfected? An infant has the totality of human nature. He doesn't become more human in this way as he grows older. Nevertheless, there are qualities intrinsic to what it means to be human 
which exist in the infant only potentially rather than actually. This is a classical metaphysical distinction, the distinction between act and potency, or potential and actuality. The perfection of the human being, and indeed, as we'll discuss, of the human family as a whole, is constituted by the growth and development of that human being so that everything which is potential in it, everything which belongs intrinsically to human nature but which is not concretely realized, all of those things will be concretely realized to their fullest extent. So that the perfection of a human being is the complete realization of the humanity which he already has in principle or in potential. And that is a relationship or a story, a development, that pertains to the cosmos as a whole. Creation as a whole is an integral unity. Creation as a whole is wired together in a comprehensive way. Everything that happens in the world affects everything else that happens in the world. There is a constant flow or current of causation which is suffusing the entire creation and we are essential components of that flow of causation which is why everything that we do has an effect on people around us and on the world around us. If you want to see something interesting from a scientific point of view, look up the Global Consciousness Project, which shows how in random numbers generated by quantum noise, because the only way that you can get true randomness rather than very, very complex um, instantiations of non-randomness, the only way you can get true randomness, that is numbers which are uncorrelated with the previous and the following number, is by generating them from quantum noise. However, when the human family is focused to a great degree on one particular event, for example, on September 11th, where the attention of much of the world turns to one thing, non-random patterns begin, arguably, to appear in this data. I highly recommend that you look at it, but it's a way of showing in a concrete way how the existence and life of the human family actually does affect the world around us. Um, so the cosmos as a whole is created as an egg of sorts, and the human family is both a part of that egg and the instrument which is responsible for keeping that egg warm and making sure that it hatches. This kind of analogy is used in scripture itself. Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John as the resurrection uh, as a woman who is in labor uh, desiring and straining to give birth. In the resurrection of Jesus, the world is truly and really given birth, and it's given birth because the glorious and perfect man, that is Jesus Christ, has nurtured it so that uh, it will be truly born. So the central story of existence is the creation of an infant universe and the growth and development of that universe, the glorification of that universe, by its being brought into the bosom of God in the Trinity, and thus the complete and total correspondence of the imprint to the archetype. If you want to think visually about this, think of... Um, Think of wet cement. Now, wet cement, you can take your hand and press it into that cement. Now, once you do so, 
there is going to be an imprint, a shape, a structure in that cement, which corresponds in detailed ways to the unique qualities that you have in your hand. Nevertheless, your hand is not going to be a part of it. It is going to be something which is very distinct from your hand, even though it correlates in an archetypal way. Now imagine that you place your hand in the depression which was created in the cement. Your hand is going to fit perfectly in that depression. It's going to fill it up. Nevertheless, there is a union of archetype with imprint, which is not identical to the correspondence which exists in the act of imprinting itself. Another way of thinking about it would be to consider God as an infinite sea of liquid gold. And the advantage of this analogy is that we can see in our mind's eye the brightness, which is an intrinsic quality of divine glory. God makes an imprint into the um, metaphorical space of contingency, that which does not have to exist. He imprints himself so that things exist which don't have to exist. And the glorification of the world is the growth of that imprint into its full shape, that is, he is presently imprinting himself. It's not just something which happened in the past. He's imprinting himself in the development of the world. That's the development of creaturely potentials to creaturely perfections. And in that very same process, he is filling this imprint with the bright brightness of divine glory. He is filling it with the liquid bright metal, which is an outflow of his own life. Now, we're going to move on in one second, but in light of what I've just said, I want you to consider how these very images appear in the scriptures. And I think these images are natural images that we'd reach for as analogies, even if we weren't given them in the scriptures, but they are in the scriptures. Consider, for example, the imagery in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, you have four metals which make up a human figure. This is in Daniel chapter 2, and it's showing the four kingdoms which lead up to the kingdom of God. Now, these four metals correspond precisely to the four metals which exist in the, tab or in the temple. From the outside in, you have iron, then you have bronze, then you have silver, and the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctuary, as it's called in the temple, you have gold. Now, as Paul will describe in the New Testament, God's glory as being the riches of God's glory, so we see that more valuable metal corresponds with a higher degree of holiness. It corresponds with a more intense revelation and infilling of the divine presence. And because the temple is a house and the human being is a house of sorts, it's a house for the Holy Spirit, the human being is a miniature universe, a microcosm, just as the temple is an architectural representation of the universe. What we're seeing in Daniel 2 is a house in human form, which is meant to guard and protect the children of Israel until the coming of the Messiah. So the, the kingdoms here are not actually villainous in and of themselves. We see this in the four beasts. There's such a thing as a good beast, right? You've got a dog which protects your property. It growls at those who, who are trying to intrude. Now, the dog is scary, but it's doing this for a good reason. It's a protective beast. The four uh, guardian beasts in Daniel chapter 7 correspond in many aspects of the vision, in fact, correspond to Ezekiel 1. It's an allusion to Ezekiel 1. It has to be understood in light of Ezekiel 1, both of which end with the Son of Man, by the way. Anyway, the four beasts of Daniel 7 correspond symbolically to the four faces of the cherubim in the book of Ezekiel, and the cherubim guard the temple or the sanctuary or the dwelling place of God. Now, my point in saying that is to draw your attention to the imagery of metal and bright metal in a holy or sacred context. And the 
real context for this and the basis for it is given in Daniel chapter chapters 10 to 12. Daniel chapter 10 to 12, we see a figure who is called the barrel man, and he himself is a um, uh, is a manifestation of the angel of the Lord. That is the head of God's divine host, who in the old covenant, as we'll talk about, are the angels, the celestial beings created on the first day of creation. He is their leader and head. He is the captain of the Lord's host, and he is the one who becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Because angels managed the old covenant, when Jesus manages the world as it exists under the old covenant, he is often identified as the angel of the Lord. He is the head of their host. And God appears in and only in the pre-existent Logos, and thus we see this bright heavenly being described in the very terms which explain why there are metals in Daniel 2 and why there are metals in the temple. The Logos is the archetype for human existence and for the cosmos, and the temple is an architectural cosmos. So the Logos uh, is described in both human terms, in terms of a human body, and in architectural terms. Notice that the temple has things like ribs. The temple has legs. Does God have a body? Well, depends on what you mean by body, but in a sense, in the Old Covenant, God's body is the temple. It has ribs, it has legs, it has a heart. There's all sorts of corporeal language which is used for the temple, which ultimately comes from the fact that it is the very archetype of the human, whole human existence, body and soul alike, uh, who gives structure to the temple. All right, next slide. So critical questions here. Uh, as we're talking about the central story of human and cosmic existence, there's going to be a lot of critical questions, and these critical questions are going to be particularly load-bearing. That is, they will affect a lot of also critical questions downstream. These, these are the foundation stones upon which everything else is built. Number one, what is the purpose of human existence in the world. Now, one answer to this is the purpose of human existence is to enjoy the life of God and to give him glory by that enjoyment. I won't hide the fact that the language that I'm using here is from the Westminster Confession, but it's a true statement. You can see it in the Psalms. Uh, now, this is a true statement, but it is not a complete statement. In fact, I think it is woefully incomplete because it fails to answer the, the question posed by the last three words here, in the world. God could have created human beings as non-corporeal intelligences without a world in which to live. If the only purpose of our existence, and by our existence, I don't mean the mere fact that we exist, but all of the qualities which constitute and form the fabric of what it means for a human being to exist, the kind of existence that we have, why is there such a thing as the world, the creation? Is it superfluous? Well, nothing in God's uh, program is ever superfluous. Sometimes people will use the phrase merely aesthetic or merely poetic. Now, this seems harmless enough, but actually it reflects a very incomplete or corrupt concept of what aesthetics or beauty is all about. You see, God exists in himself. He is the existent one as the service of Vespers tells us, that's our service on Saturday evening for those who aren't familiar with Orthodox liturgics. Uh, he is the existent one. Whenever we talk about something which has a property, that property has its root and archetype in God. And the character of that existence in God is beauty. It brings delight. 
by virtue of its apprehension. God's existence is beautiful. Now, when we talk about purposes, when we talk about ends, we are talking about a quality intrinsic to the existence of a thing. For example, let's say that I fashion a hammer. That hammer is fashioned with a particular end in mind. That hammer is fashioned so that it can hit nails. Its weight distribution is constituted so that it can do that effectively. And the structure of the nail and the nature of what it means to hit a nail is built into and shapes the structure of the hammer. And insofar as the cosmos is a theater by which God is revealed as God, which means as infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful, there is nothing in the cosmos which is merely poetic or merely aesthetic because beauty is coextensive with the practical when you get down to brass tacks. When you unpack the essence of a concept, if you do it accurately, and then you unpack the inner essence of all the constituent concepts, you are going to find that while beauty and practicality can be distinguished, they can never be separated. They are coextensive with each other. You can never have one without the other. So as nothing is purposeless, as everything has its proper place in the grand purpose and the grand pattern of created existence, why is there such a thing as a world? Why do human beings exist in the world? And the world has a trajectory, it develops, it moves through what we call time. And time is a grammar by which we talk about a particular kind of relation. Time is the language that emerges when we try to articulate what it means for a thing to move from potency to actuality, or what it means for a thing to exist in actuality. Because actuality, is activity. They're the same word in the Greek language, en ergeo or en ergon. Work is ergon and en is the preposition which precedes it, en ergeia. That's activity. It's also actuality. So what it means for a thing to exist is the same thing as what it means for it to be active, which means activity, actuality, existence is never the cessation of motion. It is rather the speeding up of motion to infinity. That's why Maximus talked about the ever-moving rest as being the eschatological destiny of the creation and the final state in which the human family lives. But when I say final, that itself can be misleading because in reality, it's only the beginning. God is infinite, and the great morning, as I'm going to argue, is a better term than uh, last day. The great morning is the beginning of the story. We're, right now, we're living in the preface. So... We want to answer this question, what's the purpose of human existence in the world? And as sin is a corruption on the world, this has to be answerable in principle without talking about sin or redemption. Okay. So what I'm going to say, and I have said to some degree, is the purpose of human existence is the glorification of creation. That is, it is the bringing of creation from potential to actual. It is the fulfillment of everything inherent in created things. There is a final pattern or archetype in God's mind for what the world ought to look like when its potentials are actualized. And God could do that without the participation of the human family. That is, God extends himself, his presence, his life, outwards in what we call procession. And 
those things which are created by that procession, in virtue of their constant dependence on it, they do what Dionysius calls reversion. They're always moving outwards from God and then flowing back inwards into the heart of God. But God graciously and contingently places a, the human being and the human family in the midst of this constant flow back and forth, such that creation or creation will flow outwards from God in and through the human family. It is co-constituted with us. That's why sacrifice is traditionally thought to uphold the world. It's not just a metaphor. That's why when righteous sacrifice stops right before the flood, what happens? The world cataclysmically collapses in on itself, and the redemption of the world only happens through Noah's sacrifice. So don't be so quick to dismiss ancient conceptions of the ontological um, importance of the sacral. Um, so God places the human being in the center of this very relation which constitutes the world as existent, and because the glorification of the world is the completion, the fulfillment of those things which are intrinsic to it as, as existent properties, uh, human beings are the instrument by which the world is restructured and built up into a house wherein God can totally reveal his glory um, in deeper and deeper ways unto all eternity. Now, the important thing here is that this is a cooperative endeavor. Now, some people will say, well, doesn't this detract from the glory of God? I say that that's, that's kind of silly. I mean, because man has the capacity to choose between different options. I'm not going to get into the metaphysics of libertarian freedom here, but I am going to say libertarian freedom is an accurate representation of my view here and the view, I think, of the tradition and the scriptures. Okay, given in a given set of circumstances... The human being truly has multiple possibilities. Some people say, well, doesn't that make your choices inexplicable and causeless? No, it doesn't, because the entire purpose of the entire concept of libertarian freedom is that the faculty of choice and will is an efficient cause. Okay, so reasons, we have reasons for the choices that we make, but reasons are not identical to causes. There are reasons for choices that we don't make. We choose the set of reasons that we will act upon and then we enact those reasons concretely in the faculty or power of choosing. Now the point here is that while the creation is what it is and thus has the potentials it has by divine gift, there are multiple ways in which those potentials can be actualized. So if you have clay in your hands, and this is an analogy used in the scripture itself, Clay is used as an image of um, uh, the cosmos, the development of the cosmos, just as it is used as an image of the development of man. Man is made from the dirt of the ground. You take dirt, you mix it with water, you got something like clay, and you shape it and you mold it. Now, clay, you have a certain amount of clay, and you can mold it and you can shape it. You can mold it and shape it in different ways. If you have 10 different ways of shaping or structuring the clay, and of course you have many more than those, but just for the sake of the analogy, if you have 10 different ways of shaping the clay, once you shape it and then bake it, the potentials will have been actualized in a particular way by choosing one path. You've closed off nine others so that glorification, development, and growth always means particularization. The cosmos becomes most fully itself. It becomes most fully integrated in its internal structure, but it also means it becomes more and more fully particular. And there are different particularities which the human being 
can choose. And so this is the way in which we are cooperatively creative with God. We have the genuine choice to select among different goods. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. We are choosing between equal splendors, and we will always be entering more deeply into the love of God by choosing among distinct goods. Some people say, well, isn't that arbitrary? Well, my question would be, is it arbitrary in such a way that renders it incoherent? And do we have a conceptual tool to understand it in an elegant way? And I think we actually do. God speaks of the human vocation, the human life, as being one of delight in his presence. Think about the concept of play. Think about what play is. You give a kid a bunch of Legos, and the kid can, if the kid's good at using Legos, he can build lots of different stuff out of it, right? And those choices are going to be mutually exclusive. That is, once he's built something, he's going to have used up his Legos. Now, is the only coherent way to explain his choice to say, well, he thought that X was better than Y? No, it's not. He may have chosen X simply because he delighted in that moment in creating this and not that. That is the very same mode of choice uh, which uh, makes intelligible God's choice to create the world. The world is not a necessary result of God's existence because what it means for God to be God and not the world is for him to exist necessarily. Yet if the creation were a necessary consequence of his existence and his desire to disclose himself, well then it would be just as necessary as God. Ipso facto, it would no longer be the creation. It would be a part of God. Um, so it's not arbitrary in any negative sense. There is a delight in choosing among things which are equally Good. And notice how I've articulated all of this without referring to sin. Now, we do live in a world in which man has freely chosen to sin. That's one of the consequences of the fact that the clay can be molded in different ways. While there might be a million different ways to mold it well, there are also potential paths which you can take which are not good. Uh, and redemption is an essential part of the story because humanity has taken that road. Nevertheless, it is not an essential part of the story in principle. It is intelligible to talk about a world after Genesis 1 and 2 where there was no sin. What is the role of the church in history? Now, this is a crucial question, and it's one which is broader than the answers which are usually given. Now, the answers which are usually given um, are things like the church is a hospital for sinners. And that's true. It's absolutely true. I'm not denying that. It is a hospital for sinners. Uh, yet, only articulating the qualities of the church in relation to sin collapses and narrows its range of purpose in a way that the New Testament does not. Consider what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul describes how God unites all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And he unites them in Christ and declares that unity through the church, through which the glory of God is proclaimed to all creation. All things are united in Christ, whose body is the church, whose bride is the church. Bridegroom and bride, they become one flesh, which is why bride and body are two aspects of a single set of images. The church is integral as the instrument by which Christ is continuing to act in the world. In the book of Acts, 
the book opens with Luke's prologue, which has many references to the prologue of Luke's gospel. And Luke says in the book of Acts, in my last work, Theophilus, which means lover of God. I, I think this is not a specific person. It's a general reference to all of his Christian audience. In my last book of Theophilus, I mentioned all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus goes up to heaven. So wouldn't it be all that Jesus didn't taught? No, because through the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to be present in the church. The book of Acts is the continued ministry of Jesus in and through the Spirit. The prophets describe how when the Spirit is poured out on Zion, a river of life will well up in the temple and it will flow out to the nations and it will give life to dead fish in the Dead Sea, reversing the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and that judgment which was what, was what created the Dead Sea in the first place. By the river of life, according to Ezekiel, trees will grow up which bear their fruit in season, an allusion to Psalm chapter 1, which refers to the righteous as those planted by a stream of water who bear their fruit in season. And what we see in this imagery, it's the same thing in Zechariah 14, by the way, what we see in this imagery is that the river of life, which is a perpetuation and outflow of divine presence, which is why it starts in the temple. Spirit, spirit is analogized with water many times. We're baptized into the spirit by, hey, guess what? Water, water and the spirit. Um, uh, the outflow of the spirit has a creative purpose. What does the prophet say? The prophet says, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Wine is glory. It refers to maturity, to growth. Many ways you can see it. Grapes, grapes are created to produce wine. Yeah, you can produce wine technically out of any fruit. But take a grape, the skin around it will ferment the juice that comes out of it, just naturally. That's why grape juice, qua grape juice, did not really become feasible until the 19th century. There's a process by which you have to stop the fermentation. Fermentation is the development from potential to actual. Now, glory is fire. Fire is glory. When you drink wine, what happens? You feel heat as it goes down your throat. Glory is the increasing of the development of the world, the deepening of its internal connections. Now, what is wine traditionally used for? Wine is used in the sacrament of the Eucharist. We drink wine and the church becomes one body in Christ. We're gathered together into one body. Wine is served at wedding feasts where not only two individuals, but two families become joined together by a... a, a, a link whose rupture is cataclysmic on a cosmic level truly uh, when people want to deal with their social anxiety they will drink and that's not a wrong thing to do you can drink too much but it's not wrong to uh, in some way use it as liquid courage wine is associated with society with unity with interaction with communion in many different ways wine is a delight God made wine to gladden the heart of man, says the psalmist. We should take that very seriously, not just wave this off as some, you know, offhand comment. Everything in scripture has its purpose, and it has both a concrete and an allegorical reference, among other things. And there are many kind of in-between levels there. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. Why? Because the river of life flows out from the temple. The river of life is the Holy Spirit who flows out from the temple and the Holy Spirit who flows out and begins on the day of Pentecost, that is a creative act. The world is being glorified and matured. It is also a redemptive act. 
Redemption is the principal subplot in the story of the world from infancy to maturity. And maturity isn't just adulthood, it's elderhood. Think about the association of glory with light. What happens when you get old? Well, your hair turns white. That is a symbol of the glory that the world grows into and that human beings grow into. Redemption is the necessary precondition for the fulfillment of the original purpose in creation. And in the glorious wisdom of God, God has chosen to redeem the world in the very same activity whereby he glorifies and matures it. And so God is always maturing, glorifying, and redeeming the world together. But we must see the distinct aspects of his work in the world. Just think of the New Testament. We, we tend to have in our, in our minds that everything here is about forgiveness. But the New Testament, for the New Testament, forgiveness, as Michael Gorman points out, is not, in fact, the primary image. Justification is something positive. It does not only exist in relation to sin. What does justification mean? It means to declare righteous. Now, declaration here is not a non-creative act because God's word is that by which the world was formed. When God declares us righteous, in that very declaration, he creates in us a new person, a new creation. According to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, or maybe it's 1 Timothy 3.16? One of the two. Uh, one of the Timothys 3.16, Jesus was justified by the Spirit. And this text uh, pretty much echoes blow for blow Romans 1 four to five, where Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. That's the flesh spirit contrast. So we see the language of declaration there, and it's that very word declared which is then replaced with justified in First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy 3.16. Justification has inside of it our participation in the life and glory of God. Why? Because the very act in which Jesus was declared righteous was the same act in which his body was transfigured and his humanity was perfected. So justification refers to a positive act of God. What happens in our baptism, in our justification? Romans, you know, 6, 1 to 4 describes baptism and then 6, 7 describes it as justification. It says justified. That is by faith, because faith is trust that God will act in accordance with what he has promised, and he has promised unconditionally to meet us in baptism. He will meet us here. We don't have to do introspection to know whether he will meet us here. It is a promise, and we trust in God's promise in baptism, and thus are justified. We'll talk about infant baptism and all that stuff another time. But justification is carried out by the infilling of the human being by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a lengthy video on the, on the subject, what it means to have peace and why we cannot set aside that peace in an effort to distinguish ourselves from Protestants. And in this very same context, it is the love of God which is poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, using this imagery of pouring, imagine that our heart is a cup, it's a vessel, and you pour some kind of liquid into it. 
but the vessel is broken. It has all sorts of cracks in it. If you pour something into it, it's going to leak out. Now, God, in the act of redemption, by pouring the Holy Spirit into us, he heals these wounds. And so, it is the very same act whereby he repairs the human being and he glorifies the human being. He not only takes something away, that is sin, but he gives us something, the Holy Spirit. The role of the church in history, the glorification of the world, um, and in the New Testament, the imagery is much broader than forgiveness. You have the very word, glorify. You have sanctify. Sanctify refers to the human being as an image of the temple. It's temple language. Justify refers to the human being in the uh, metaphorical law court. And in fact, in, you know, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as an independent quote-unquote judiciary. The executive is the chief judge and magistrate, and the chief executive is the king. Well, you know what the temple is? The word is palace. God sits as king in his palace and renders judgment, which is why language of justification, which deals with the courtroom, which happens in the throne room of God, and sanctification, which refers to the presence of God in the temple, these are coextensive sets of images. Paul says, you were justified, you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. If washed is coextensive with sanctified, there's no reason to suggest that justified refers to something very distinct from sanctified. Many people will say, well, you're, you're missing the distinction between justification and sanctification. You know, as if, you know, it's just someone is missing the point rather than having an actual disagreement. Um, I would argue that even if the substance of the doctrine is true, the, just, the distinction between a juridical justification and an ontological transformative sanctification, that new terminology must be found because the way that the New Testament uses these words is simply not the way that the words have come to be used in most Protestant confessions. Anyway, um, that's a tangent. What is the calling of Christians before their death? This, I think, is actually one... For, for someone, for an academic, um, uh, for someone who has an interest in philosophy or the sciences, or someone who's an engineer, um, basically anybody who's outside the clergy, who have an internal role in ministering to the church, you know, the church is the priesthood of the world, and the priesthood is the priesthood to the priesthood. Well, I think that this is one of the most important and relevant implications. What is the calling of Christians before their death? Now, if the story is summed up and completely accounted for by the story of redemption or salvation from sin, the question has to arise in your mind, well, why isn't every Christian a pastor? Why isn't every Christian a, uh, a missionary? Because if that's the true, if that's the truth, if Christianity just is the story of forgiveness from sin, then it seems like any other vocation in the world is in principle, basically a distraction. So you might do it because you have to eat, but there's no essential value to it no essential value to the sciences. There might be accidental value to it. Uh, someone might delight in the creation and thus uh, uh, thank God for it, and that's a good thing as far as it goes, but it's not integral to the calling of the human family or the calling of the church. Uh, if that thing has any essential value at all, it would be you know, in the world to come. And this is where I think the uh, paradigm of glorification as the center rather than redemption as the center, though both are included, as we said many times, um, this, this, that's where it really does a lot of its most helpful work. Because the 
glorification of the world, the bringing of it to its fullness, is accomplished by its assimilation to and union with the human family. The human family is a microcosm of the macrocosm. The human family is a miniature representation of the world, which means that everything the world ought to be is present in one way or another in the human family. The world exists by virtue of the Logos, who knows it into existence, as it were. The Logos is the word of God, and each individual Logos, with a lowercase l, refers to the divine archetype, which is the principle by which individual creatures exist. There are different modes of participation in God's creative acts, which are called individually or particularly the Logi, the Logoi. That's the plural of Logos. Uh, that's the archetype of their being, and it is present by imprint in the human family. And so, when God constitutes the world by knowing it into existence, its existence is perfected when the human being knows the world. This is, this is a point Dimitri Stanilowi makes in his Orthodox Dogmatic Theology. In English, it's the experience of God. I think it's in the first volume. Uh, when we know the creation, when we apprehend its inner principles, the ideas which make a thing what it is, if we truly apprehend that principle, we are necessarily apprehending something about God because the print, the arch or the logos of its existence is an imprint of the uncreated logos, which is the archetype of the you know, created logos, as it were, um, and the thing is meant to be perfected in its creatureliness and united to that of which it is an imprint. Now, because the mode of that imprinting is one which can be described by knowing, can be described in the language of consciousness, when we take the world into ourselves by truly knowing it, by apprehending the inner ideas, we are not just knowing it passively, as if we're receiving the world into ourself and we don't give it anything, we don't give anything back, but in the very act of knowing it, of understanding it, we are bringing the world closer to its perfection. Think about what Solomon says in Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God, and remember how glory uh, is used in the, in the context of the maturation of the world in many, many cases. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. That is, the kind of being that God is, the kind of existence that he has, all of his qualities which make him the uh, tripersonal, I'm trying to avoid using the word person in singular, make him the being he is. Um, that's his glory, which we share. That's reflected in his act of concealing stuff in the world. And it is the glory of kings to search it out. This is a passage James Jordan refers to many times, and it's a truly profound passage. Revelation 21, the city of God, the church, which is also the cosmos, Isaiah 65, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Very next verse, I create a new heavens and new earth. The city of God as a city is a microcosm of the world. It is a polis, which represents the unity in diversity that makes the world what it is. City of God is an image of the whole creation. In Revelation 21, the architecture, which is the city of God, is described as a mountain. So there, the river has a downward flow, and the 
dimensions given in Revelation 21 are only consistent with a pyramid or a cube because the river is a downward flow. It's a pyramid. So the book of Daniel says there's an uncut stone that refers to an altar. See Exodus 20. The uncut stone uh, assimilates all of the kingdoms of the earth into itself and it is, grows into a mountain which fills the whole earth. So Revelation 21 shows the whole earth as it is permeated and suffused by the church, the church which is the house of God through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit uh, fills the whole universe um, and with the divine presence that makes it uh, not just a world which has a holy mountain but which is a holy mountain it is a pyramid it is the presence of god is totally connected with every part of it and what are we told we are told kings shall bring their glory into it now in the context of revelation saint john describes every christian as priests and kings to god the father and jesus christ so in this context, it is referring to Proverbs 25.2. God hides things about himself in the world. He delights in doing that. And he delights when we find them, when we meditate on them day and night. And having found the treasure that he hid in the world and meant for us to find, having found it, we bring that into the church, into the creation, and further the destiny of the world into being more glorious more intimately connected with the presence of God. Think about, I mentioned earlier the image of play. We're told in, in the Psalms, God made Leviathan to play in the sea. God gives forth his presence in what is called the river of your delights. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Play is a way of describing that human activity which is principally oriented to the gaining of pleasure and the only real pleasure is had in and through god when the creation is delighted in in and through god and by his grace well think about the kinds of play that people arrange for their children scavenger hunts is the parent being malicious why are they hiding things if they want their kid to find it if it's important shouldn't they just give it to them directly why do we wrap presents What's the point of that? If we keep this principle in mind, we will see many, many echoes in the world of the principle of hiding something so that we might find it. Everything that is hidden is hidden so that it might be revealed. So that it might be revealed. There's a connection between the hiding and the revelation. But what's the point of the hiding? Well, think about it. If you have to search for something, you value it more. People, uh, many people in trying to critique Christianity make the assumption that truth ought to be easy to find. You know, in one sense, truth is obvious, and in another sense, truth is hidden. God is a God who hides himself, and he's a God who fills the universe. Many people talk as if the idea that truth should be easy to find is a given. The same thing when people are trying to decide among Christian traditions. It's frustrating, and I understand the frustration, that truth seems difficult to find. But in fact, throughout the New Testament, it is a common theme that it is not easy to find. It is like the um, coin that is hidden in the field. Jesus speaks about the hiding of things so that they might be revealed. Jesus says, I came and I speak in parables so that they might be obscure, so that they might be hidden. If you work at something really hard, you value it more. 
That is why it is not merely what you get out of studying the world, but it is the way you get it. I can tell you that the fact of having to work really hard to interpret the scripture has made me value what the scripture teaches infinitely more than if it was just given as kind of like a list of propositional statements. Because think about it. If we, scripture was given as this is what you're supposed to believe, it's all very straightforward, that's it. People would read it once and they would think they got the whole picture. But you have to work at it day and night. You have to digest it. You have to think on it. You have to take the scroll, as Ezekiel does, St. John does, take the scroll and you chew on it. That's why chewing the cud, by the way, has connections with sacredness. You chew on it. And then you speak and you've digested it and you re-articulate it in a new way. That's the process by which we come to know the world. That's the process by which the world comes to be itself. And because we are both part of the world and the world's bridegroom, that the, the, the act and the vocation of guarding and caring for the creation, well, that act uh, uh, is an act of a bridegroom. Think about in the book of Judges. book of Judges, you have stories at the end of the book of a husband who didn't do his job in protecting his bride, and you have story of the Levitical priesthood. They didn't do their job in protecting Israel. What, who's Israel? Israel is the bride of God. Israel is the bride of God. They're married at Mount Sinai. There's a wedding feast of the bride of God. And the priesthood, remember the priesthood is consecrated at Sinai. The priesthood is the guardian of Israel. They are the proxy husband, as it were. Apostle Paul, this is one of the ways we know that uh, ministers in the church are priestly in character. The Apostle Paul uh, says that he uh, has a divine jealousy for the church so that he might present it as a pure bride to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians uh, 11. Our task of guarding the world, of developing the world, of glorifying the world, well, that is the task that we have as bridegroom. Now think about, even in the English language, animal, what's the word? Husbandry. It's amazing that when you see these concepts, you start to find that they're uh, scattered and distributed in so many different ways across you know, normal English parlance. And I don't think that these words and these phrases came to be what they were because someone was thinking about this. I think it's just part of the inner structure of language. The whole truth of the logos or the whole structure of the world is hidden in our being latently and it naturally will outflow to produce language which gives us insight into the way that God thinks even if the etymology or the history of the word itself did not involve a conscious apprehension of that connection. So what is the relevance of this to the calling of Christians before their death? Well if you understand that the cosmic purpose for the church is that of bringing the world from glory to glory by coming to know it more profoundly, well then, all work, all labor has great significance in the eyes of God and has a theological context. What do you do when you work in the world? What is work? Well, on the first day of creation, God made the heavens and the earth. That is, the heavens are the celestial realm, the angels who fill the throne room of God. They are not the stellar heavens, the heavens with the stars in it. And the way that we know that is we can look at texts like Psalm 104, which follow out blow by blow the seven creation days, and we can look at what's in the first slot and what's in the fourth slot. In the first slot, you have the flames of fire who are God's ministers. Okay. You also have in Colossians 1.15, you have, it, 
all things were created through Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. And in the heavenly slot, you have the angelic world. The stellar heavens are an imprint or an image of that celestial realm. See it in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a microcosm of everything that God created. Well, in the middle of the tabernacle, the holy place, you have the menorah, and the menorah has seven branches on the lampstand corresponding to the sun, the moon, and the five wandering stars, which we know as the five planets, which are visible with the naked eye. But you have to go up one more step to enter into the throne room of God, which is the mercy seat. You have the throne of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant itself. And on either side, you have the two cherubim. And the two cherubim are symbols of the heavenly council. That is, the council, the gathering of celestial beings who participate with God in his governance of the world. The sons of God, as you see in Job 1-2. to And we are seated in heaven with Christ. We are members of that council in the new covenant. So when God creates the heavens and the earth, it is not a statement of what he's about to do. It is a statement of what he just did. He created the heavens, and the heavens are complete. They're mature. They're perfect. The heavens don't develop. Angels don't multiply. According to the tradition of the church, and this has philosophical and biblical basis, angels, on account of the kind of being that they are, when they make their free choice, they are fixed in either good or evil. That is because they made that choice in full vision of the presence of God, which means they had comprehensive knowledge of all of the possibilities and the implications of their choice. And because they made their choice in complete knowledge, with no ignorance, there's no room, as it were, to change their mind, because they already know every relevant fact. So they're either fixed in glory or fixed in evil. So the purity of the malice of the devils is something to behold. Um, it is a malice which is nearly unheard of among human beings, even serial killers. They're a mixture of, uh, there are still traces of good, but a, a devil who is being exercised, the malice is pure. Um, and it's, it's quite shocking. The same thing, true in reverse for angels. So what's the earth here? Well, the earth is the raw material out of which everything else is structured. So it's not the heavens which are formless, void, and with darkness. It's the earth. And the darkness is over what? The face of the waters. Water is the primordial element. Water is that which is restructured and remade into every other element. Now, I'm speaking theologically. I'm not making any particular scientific claim. Do I think as we continue to study in the coming thousands of years, the sciences, we're going to see ways in which this is the case? But I'm not claiming to have any more than just little trace bits of evidence for this model of thinking right now. So just think about it theologically um, and bracket the concrete implications. Uh, water is the primordial element. It's restructured and remade into everything else which exists in creation. So darkness is over the face of the waters. It's formless. It's void. It's dark. And what does God do? Well, the spirit comes. What's the spirit? The spirit is that glory cloud of God by which his bright presence becomes present in the world. It is an eternal reality, of course. The divine light is itself uncreated. Uh, the divine light is that by which God is present within the personal relations of the Trinity. The spirit comes and he dwells over the surface of the waters. And God says, let there be light. 
So this is the first echo of the spirit that we see in the, uh, the pattern of the creation week. Now, what's the first thing that you do when you are about to build a house, let's say? Well, the first thing you do is you conceive of the idea of the house in your mind. So you have the archetype in your mind and it's like imprinted on a blueprint. So light is that which contains that archetype and blueprint for everything else which comes after. Now think about the imagery of light even in our own common speech. Light is associated with the mind. It's associated with the ideas. If someone is smart, what do we say? He is a bright boy. If someone's dumb, he's pretty dim. So it's amazing the ways in which idioms reflect ontological realities. God conceives of the idea of the world, and that conception is shown to us in Scripture with let there be light. Light shines on the world. And then throughout the six-day creation, God is going to take the primordial stuff of the world, and he's going to restructure it. He is going to mold it so that it is formed, that is, it is shaped, the stuff which exists in the world uh, has new kinds of imprints, there are new kinds of existence. It is filmed, and that means that the stuff which is imprinted in the world, it's placed in new kinds of relation with other stuff in the world. So God creates wine and God creates the cup. That's the forming. But the putting of the wine in the cup is the filling. It's placed in new sorts of relations. And because God himself is existence and God is trinity, relationality, communion, is what it means for a thing to exist so that forming and filling are both necessary for the creation to attain the fullness of its existence. I know I've repeated this a number of times, but I'm hammering it home because it's that central. Everything that I say has some relation to this fundamental trinitarian truth. God forms, he fills, and he brightens. The world was formless, it was void, it was dark. Um, so that's what God does in the creation week. That is what it means for God to labor. Labor is restructuring, remolding the world. In the Jewish tradition, and I'm not endorsing this you know, wholeheartedly, but there is a certain logic to it. In Judaism, what is it which differentiates work from not work on the Sabbath? Well, work is something which restructures the world. So, I mean, a lot of people will point to um, halakhic regulations, you know, the particular Jewish law, and they'll say, well, there's no logic to this. This is absurd. Why can't you rip toilet paper on the Sabbath? But actually, whether or not you agree with it in practice, there is a logic to it. Ripping toilet paper is restructuring the stuff of the world. And that is the essence of what it means for God to work. God restructures the world throughout the six days. And on the Sabbath, God comes to dwell in the world which he has restructured. And the fall actually happens on the Sabbath. Uh, that can be proved in a number of ways. And I won't get into that right now, except um, except to say that if you just take, if you look at the story in Genesis 2 to 3, well, Adam and Eve, uh, are created on the sixth day. We know that from Genesis 1. Uh, and on the Sabbath, God is meant to come and dwell in glory. I mean, the Sabbath is when a king sits on his throne after doing what he set out to do. Well, God is the king. The throne is the creation. And besides the throne are the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Tree of knowledge corresponds to kingship. Tree of life corresponds to the gift of existence. God is supposed to meet them at the tree of life. Well, that's because on the Sabbath, we have a feast uh, on the Sabbath, it is when you put the bread and the wine before 
God. This is when you replace the food which is on the table. Uh, the Sabbath is associated with the language of Exodus 24, when the 70 elders go up the mountain and they sit, um, they sit in the presence of the God in Israel and eat and drink. Um, all of man's work flows out of man's rest in the presence of God. If you've ever heard of the book Leisure, the Basis of Culture, this is the source of the idea in the structure of the world. Anyway, um, what happens is that on the evening of the Sabbath, which remember comes before morning, Adam and Eve, they see the tree of knowledge, they have the dialogue with the devil, and he is the devil, by the way. We'll talk about that maybe in this video, maybe another time. He's not just a snake, he's the devil. Um, they have that dialogue with the devil, they fall, and... Well, God doesn't immediately show up. This is the delay of the parousia. <laughs> uh, God doesn't immediately show up. Adam thinks, hey, it looks like I'm safe. God hasn't killed Eve. Looks like the serpent's right. God's alone. Eats of the tree of knowledge. Well, then they uh, are given the power to know that they are out of their depth. They are ashamed. And they weave clothes out of vegetables. Now, when you think about what that means, you know that's not something you can do in two seconds. They spend the night doing it. And then it's in the morning, because morning is where God makes his presence known. God's presence is light, and morning is the revelation of the light. In the morning, God comes in his glory. Genesis 3.8 is often rendered, you know, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But the word for cool is actually spirit. And day refers to the day of the Lord, the day in which God shines his light on something so that nothing can be hidden. He sees it for what it is, and he evaluates it according to its degree of correspondence or lack thereof with his own presence, you know, with the archetype which exists in the person of the Logos, and he judges accordingly. Well, God uh, comes in glory, comes in the spirit of the day, of the day of the Lord, and what happens? Adam and Eve are afraid. Well, Moses, same thing. God comes in glory in the burning bush, the glory of God is real, Moses is afraid. God comes in glory on Mount Sinai, Israel is afraid. After Adam and Eve, isn't there nothing wrong with the fear in principle because we're fallen humanity, but the origin of that fear is the reality that man is naked. If you're naked, but it's pitch black, hey, you're probably gonna be okay, as long as the light doesn't get turned on. But if it's pitch black and then the light comes on, suddenly your orientation towards everyone else fundamentally changes. You're ashamed. Uh, and you start trying to make excuses, which is exactly what happens. So the six-day work week is the creative process. Okay, you're restructuring the world. And then on the Sabbath, you worship God. Now, in Christian liturgy, Sunday is the eighth day. That means the resurrection is the birth of the glorified world. It is not merely the first day of the week, the birth of an infant um new cosmos, but the eighth day, the completion of the old one. Same uh, same thing from different perspectives. So a lot of the sabbatical stuff is associated with the eighth day, which is Sunday. But I, won't, I don't want to get into that at the moment. Uh, you have your worship of God, and that's the moment in the week from which everything else flows, and to which it flows. You know, you, um, And that is summed up eucharistically. When you work in the world, when you are restructuring the world during the week, well, you produce something of value. Now, in the modern world, this is usually not given to you in kind. You're not uh, growing plants, which you then have, and that's your wealth. Uh, you're usually receiving a paycheck. Now, consider the fact that 
most people do not have most of their wealth in money or currency. Most people have most of their wealth in assets, which is the assessed value of everything that a person owns in monetary terms. Okay, but they don't hold it mostly in money. The paycheck is a representation of the increased value one has produced by a creative act in the world during the week. One has poured oneself into the world, has restructured it in various ways, whether that's in terms of ideas, whether that's concretely, whether doing hard labor or intellectual work, or you know, one of the many things that involve both. Um, you have poured yourself into it and you receive a representation of the value of that work assessed by other human beings, of course, because value is relative to the person assessing the value. But it is also objective in that everything has an objective worth in the eyes of God. And what do we see in the New Testament? The riches of God's glory. As St. Seraphim points out in Acquisition of the Holy Spirit, uh, language of currency and of wealth is often used uh, in uh, the context of describing how a person acquires the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, trade till I come in the parable. Jesus uh, describes uh, the image of the person who buries his talent and God says, or the representative of God in the story, I could have received interest on this. I could have accumulated wealth. Because what we're doing, if we work properly, is we are restructuring the world so it, that it more precisely corresponds to the life of the creator. Uh, we are making it more valuable, richer, more glorious. The raw material of the world does not increase, but the restructuring of the world that we carry out because of our body-soul relation. You know, the soul is that in which these ideas are conceived, and the body is the mode by which we interact corporeally with the world. Well, that produces value. And then in our worship, you have the Eucharist, Christ, his offering is presented to God, we enter into that offering by which Christ presents the whole cosmos to God as a tribute, as a gift of thanksgiving, because God gives the world to us as a gift, and our participation in the reversion of the world to God, God's creation is procession, and our response to that is the participation in its reversion, its entrance back into the heart of God. The proper mode of that reversion in a human being is thanksgiving, Christ does this by his total fidelity to God in total love to mankind. The whole cosmos is offered to God by a human being. So the first truly human being has lived. That is put on the Eucharistic altar. We remember members of the church living and dead when we place it on the Eucharistic altar because it is in Christ, the Logos, the mind of God in whom everything is remembered in whom everything exists, because God is upholding it in existence in and through the Logos. So we join the people of the church to that memory. God sends down his Holy Spirit. He transforms it into the body and blood of Christ. That offering is complete. It's fully present. And then we add to that which is already complete. We enter into and participate in the gift of thanksgiving, which our Lord Jesus Christ offered to the Father. Our work in the world is creative. Our work in the world is given a monetary value, a monetary representation. And we give thanks to God by offering him a tribute of that. We offer him a portion of our work in the world, thereby saying, everything that I am, I owe to you. 
the raw material in which I worked is from you. The power by which I worked is from you. The mind according to which I worked is from you. As such, it is Christ's offering to the Father upon which we place our own offering of thanksgiving. And that is the essence of the human calling, to creatively restructure the world so as to make it more glorious. And you see here that this includes all legitimate professions. The scientist seeks to know the world as it is, as Adam would study the animals, he saw intuitively by virtue of the spirit the inner essence of each animal and gave it a proper name. The act of naming animals in relation to each other is a divine vocation. If we do so accurately and wisely, we will come to understand the creation better and come to understand God better by it. This isn't some way of passing the time. It is a divine work in the world. The strength by which a person might be a true Christian, a true Christian righteous scientist, comes from the church, which is guarded and ministered to by the ministerial priesthood. But the laity and the ministerial priesthood are equally important. Both have equal access to the presence of God. Everybody, no matter what degree of priesthood they have, has more access to God than the high priest did under the Old Testament. The ministerial priesthood is about the inner structure of that corporate priesthood, which is in the inner sanctuary, which has direct access to the Creator. The laity is an order of priesthood in the creation. And as priests, we seek to protect and sustain what already exists as an imprint of God in the creation and to cultivate and develop what remains to be cultivated and developed. And the whole creative process of procession and reversion is liturgically embodied in the divine liturgy and in the Eucharist, wherein God extends himself to us by producing that which is harvested and worked into bread and wine. We give him thanks. We place that which he has given to us on the altar. God extends himself to us by joining himself in the body and blood of Christ to these things which we have placed on the altar. And we arise in ascension back up to God when we drink of that bread or drink of that wine and partake of that bread. And this is the context in which work exists. And so anything you do, do it for the glory of God. This is not a throwaway statement. It has a complex and very rich theological underpinning. And so the essential integral nature of these vocations. The only way I think that we can coherently, you know, not just shove them to the side, is by understanding glorification of the world as the central arc of biblical and of human and cosmic history, with redemption as the principal and essential subplot. Suddenly Christianity is a much bigger umbrella. It is the grammar of the world, not just a story about how we can be pardoned from sins. Who will be saved? Obviously a controversial question. To answer it properly, you have to define salvation. And what I mean by salvation here is someone who has an inheritance in the world to come. Okay, So you're resurrected on the last day, and there will be some who inherit and some who don't. To inherit means that you exist in harmony with the creation. 
Now, my perspective is that, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Um, but I, I do want to say that, you know, Jesus says two things. He says, he who is not with me is against me. People quote that all the time. He who is not with me is against me. But he also says, he who is not against us is for us. You know, this is one of those things that Jesus says. It's a style of wisdom teaching. You know, Solomon in the Proverbs, he says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. Jesus presents these two apparently contradictory statements as an invitation to think about the logic of their relationship to one another. Jesus says, whoever gives you a drink of water, speaking to his followers, so by implication the person giving a drink, who is not one of his followers, will not be forgotten in the kingdom. And yet, if we present a paradigm wherein even one person who is outside of the church or who is not a Christian might be saved on the last day, it risks making the church seem superfluous if redemption and personal salvation is the only significant aspect of the story. But if the church's vocation is being the instrument by which the world is structured, glorified, created, you know, we're continuing the work of creation, if that's the essential story, well, then it's not so superfluous anymore because the historical centrality of the church is not just who ultimately inherits the world to come, but how do we get there? There's a tradition, and it's a very old tradition, it's in East and West, that the Emperor Trajan, and I, I want to be careful with how much I say about this topic, because it's, one, it's obviously the most spiritual significant topic, we're responsible to answer to God on our, on our own account. But I'm approaching this, I'm hope, trying to be careful theologically. The tradition is that the Emperor Trajan was redeemed to God. That by the liturgical intercession of, I believe it was Pope St. Gregory the Great, the soul of Trajan entered into the presence of God after being in what Catholics would call purgatory, what Orthodox might call the middle state. You know, It's a state wherein you're cleaned up so that you can safely enter into the presence and the glory of God. Okay, so it's a temporary stay in Sheol. Great divorce explains this, I think, very, very beautifully, very well. Um, now, here's the significance. First of all, this is something which is a tradition which existed anciently. So people who say that this is some modern progressive thing are just wrong. This is something which existed in antiquity. Second of all, Trajan is Trajan dies, and I believe he is born after the birth of the church, at least after the incarnation of the word. Okay, so Trajan is not somebody whom Christ encounters when he descends into Sheol. He is born after the rise of Christianity, after the birth of Christianity. Number three, Trajan knew about the church. You want to know how we know that? Because he wrote to Pliny the Younger about it. They talk about how to handle Christians. What does he say? He says, don't seek, don't seek them out. Don't try to find them and persecute them. But, you know, if they refuse to renounce Christ, um, then you can execute them. He actually oversaw the sporadic persecution of some Christians, or he authorized it. He knew about Christianity, he persecuted it. And this is the person whom in antiquity, by a number of the fathers, this is the person who was brought back to God by the intercession of the church. I think that is, it's one of the most hopeful aspects we have in the tradition. 
And I think the underlying logic has to do with its culpability. Remember how I said the reason that a demon doesn't or can't change his mind is because they, they knew comprehensively and perfectly all of the relevant information because they were looking directly at the presence of God in which all of that information exists and has its source? Well, that's the basis by which we say that culpability is an essential factor in um, a sin being mortal or not. When we commit major sins and are culpable, we become callous, resistant to the word of God. But if we're not culpable, it creates less resistance. And this is the theme in the New Testament. What does Paul say? Paul says that Christ came to him and uh, appeared to him because he persecuted Christians in ignorance, because he thought he was serving God. Now, I don't think a lot of people really take into account the significance of this passage. Paul is saying that because he did what he did, after fashion, in good faith, he was able to receive the message of Christ. In Acts 13:48, uh, it says um, many people argue from argue for an unconditional election from this text. They say uh, it's as many as who were ordained to salvation believed. Uh, I think a better rendering is as many who were disposed to salvation believed. That is, by their disposition, by their orientation, they were disposed to receive the grace of Christ, and that has to do with whether you're calloused or not. It has to do with your culpability. What does Peter say to the, the Jews? He says, uh, you crucified the author of life, but you did this in ignorance, so receive the gospel. The implication, if you did not do this in ignorance, you know, Jesus said, uh, forgive them, they know not what they do. If they did know what they did, they, they were doing, well, it's a very different situation then. But the point I'm making here in relation to Trajan and his culpability is that his salvation still occurs through the church. It is through the intercessions of the church that Trajan is brought back to God. Now, I've written an article on the book of Revelation as a heavenly liturgy and how this relates to the book of Revelation as a heavenly liturgy. I'll try to summarize it. Here, Revelation chapter 6, St. John sees a vision of the saints under the altar. Okay, so the saints under the altar are the saints of the Old Covenant. Okay, so throughout the book of Revelation, you have this phrase, um, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Testimony of Jesus is the New Covenant revelation. Here in Revelation 6, you only have the word of God. Now, if you, have, if you know the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple, you know that the bronze altar exists in the courtyard. And the bronze altar is sprinkled with sacrificial blood. And after that blood is sprinkled, then the sacrifice will be burned on the altar and the smoke will ascend up to the presence of God. So first there's a sacrifice, there's a purification, and then there's an ascension up to the presence of God. Now the book of Revelation narrates the ascension, this is my view, but I think it's very well grounded, it narrates the ascension of the old covenant saints into the throne room of God after the pattern of Jesus' own ascension. Revelation 4-5, to a lamb with seven eyes enters into the throne room of God. It says thrones were set. Well, that same phrase, thrones were set, is from Daniel 7. Then in Revelation chapter 20, uh, thrones were set, and those to whom the authority to judge were committed is committed are placed on these thrones. Well, these are the saints, the saints of the Old Covenant, Revelation chapter 6, saints of the New Covenant. What is the means by which they are brought up? Well, it is the liturgical intercession of the church. How? Because the first thing happens, you have the offering of Christ. Well, then you have the martyrdom of the church. There is a harvest of bread and of wine. 
such as martyrdom of the First Fruits Church. And Revelation is the pattern for every moment of church history. So there are many legitimate interpretations which have an intrinsic connection to each other. I want to make that clear. And how does do the saints enter into the throne room of God? How do they ascend into heaven? Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. No one has ever ascended to heaven except he who has descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, or the Son of Adam, the High Priest. The seven eyes on Revelation 4 to, in 4 to 5, I should have said this, are the seven letters engraved on the crown of the High Priest. Zechariah 3, the High Priest, is described as having a crown with seven eyes. So how do you get from point A to point B? Well, the blood, which is signified as wine, wine is called the blood of grapes, Genesis 49, the blood, which is harvested from the world, is sprinkled on the world. In Revelation chapter 15, you have uh, the sanctuary of God being empty. All of the elders, who I would argue are angels, Revelation 4 to 5, have acted once and stepped off stage. They're led by a figure called another angel. And the another angel, when the word another appears without a preceding referent from which it is distinguished, it's the angel of the Lord, Jesus, acting as head of the Old Covenant, which, remember, is governed by angels. Um, the sanctuary is empty. It's filled with the smoke of the divine presence. Sorry, it should be Revelation 16, which is when it's filled with the smoke and the glory of God. And then you have the bowl judgments. Okay? And there's lots of bowl figures in the Old Testament. It's a sacral object. Well, where's the, what's being poured on the world? It's the very blood which was harvested from the saints in Revelation uh, uh, 14 and 15. Think about the judgment on Egypt. The infants of Israel were thrown into the Nile River and murdered, and Egypt wasn't judged. But 80 years later, the Nile turns to blood. The blood of the infants arises and bears witness against Egypt, and then they are judged. Now, what is judgment? Judgment is redemptive because it is the purification of the world from that which is corrupting and abusing the world. So God sprinkles seven bowls on the creation and purifies it. This echoes the Day of Atonement. Jesus is a high priest. We have lots and lots of Day of Atonement stuff in Revelation. In the Day of Atonement, the various objects in the temple and the tabernacle are sprinkled seven times. And this is the road by which the saints enter into the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 20. The throne room is emptied out. Then the world is sprinkled by the blood of the saints. Remember the Eucharist joins us to the body and blood of Christ. It is the means by which we become redemptive through... Uh, for the world. So it is through the liturgical celebration in heaven that the world is governed. The temple is the palace. The palace is the place from which God governs the world. And God is the archetype for both the high priest and the great king. That is why liturgy is a network of rituals conducted in the throne room of God by which the world is sustained in existence and developed in history according to the divine purpose and the divine plan. Liturgy 
and raining, these are two aspects of a single event, a single process, a single set of concepts. And this is the heavenly liturgy, and look at our liturgy. It is through the Eucharist that we pray for the dead, and we include both specific prayers for those who are baptized and general prayers for all those who have reposed. It is through the Eucharist that those who are in Sheol, which is what is under the altar, the altar is a miniature holy mountain. Okay, um, In Ezekiel, you have an altar, which is actually called the mountain of God, but there's lots of other evidence for it. You have an un uncut stone. That's a reference to an altar by virtue of Exodus 20. It's echoed here in Daniel 2, and it grows to be a mountain. Altar, holy mountain. Look at the cosmic geography. Under the mountain, you have Sheol. That is the place of the dead. Now, eternal death, which we call damnation, is being locked up and sealed in the grave. That's the second death because it is a perpetual division between nature and person, a perpetual division between uh, world and human being, a perpetual division between what human beings fundamentally ought to be and what they fundamentally are. Abraham's bosom was in the grave. Samuel, when he comes up, when Saul summons him, he's in the grave, and it's clear that uh, what his rest was was a kind of sleep. I'm not saying he wasn't conscious, but he wasn't actively engaged in the affairs of Israel. Okay? He was separated, cut off from the world. That's what death is fundamentally all about. The saints of the Old Covenant, they're under the altar. They're in Sheol, under that mountain. They're in the good part of Sheol. And then through the heavenly liturgy, they're brought up into the throne room of God. Well, that's expressed and replicated in all of our particular divine liturgies, which is a participation and entrance into that heavenly liturgy. And that is why I think even for those who die outside the boundaries of the canonical church, or even those who die and baptize, if they are saved, they're not only saved by Christ, which is a given, but they're saved by Christ according to his body through the church. Now, you can agree with me, you can disagree with me, but that's why I think what I do here. Boy, this has taken a long time, but I think it's going pretty well. Uh, important concept. All right, so I'm going to end with this next slide. slide. Uh, you know, I always say it's going to be one video, and I think in my head, oh, it'll be about a half hour, and then it ends up being like an hour and a half. We're only halfway through with this slide. What is man that you are mindful of him? There's a quotation from Psalm chapter 8. A lot of people read Psalm 8, and they think, what is man that you're mindful of him is a statement of mankind's insignificance. But it's actually not. You know, God's glory has just been exalted. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established the strength because of your foes. Uh, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, when I look at all the glorious and splendid things that you have done, the greatness of this world you have made, how great must man be that you who have set the moon by your own fingers in the heavens, who, you who named the stars, are mindful of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? And people who say that this is prideful are confusing person and nature. Uh, human nature is, the, is in the image of God. What is man in the image of God mean? Now, when we think of image of God, and this isn't incorrect, but I think it's not precisely what uh, the concept is, 
we think a human being is in the image of God. Okay, that's, that's true because every human being is a particular expression of the totality of human nature. But in the book of Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness, a couple of things we want to understand. First, is there a distinction between image and likeness? Irenaeus says there is. He says that image is what we are given by virtue of our creation, by virtue of our birth. It's what we have. Likeness is what we're shaped into. It's what we become. It's our perfection in the glory of God. Now, the difficulty at face value is that you look at the words themselves, the Hebrew words, and they're actually interchangeable in, for example, Genesis 5. However, there are different prepositions used here. And it is my view, I've written an article about this. Uh, if you want to read it, you can ask in the comments. It's my view that um, if you look at the distinct prepositions here, for example, look at the preposition that's used with image, you look at the preposition that's used with likeness, it is the prepositions which are consistently associated with the subtly distinct concepts. For example, it's let us create man in our own image. You see the plural here. Okay, This is the, this is the one place in Genesis 1 that God uses this plural, first person plural. Well, when's the next place that such a plural is used? It's Genesis chapter 3. Man has become like one of us. These are related concepts. The one is the creation of man in the image of God. This is why it's so silly to say they're different sources. I mean, give me, an, give me a break. Um, one describes the blessing of being created in the image of God. The other one describes man's seizure of the tree of kingship, tree of the wisdom to discern between good and evil and to manage the world. You manage the world by restructuring, by creating it. You have sovereignty to do that. Um, one is legitimate, the other is illegitimate. Man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil. That's, phrase, that's, a, that's terminology that is used of the divine counsel. They have knowledge. The members of the divine counsel who are rebels against God in Psalm 82, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. In Psalm 82, when God is announcing the judgment of those whom he calls gods, this is enacted by Christ on the cross and on Holy Saturday. On Holy Saturday, we actually sing this psalm, Psalm 82. It's, isn't that cool? I mean, it's just amazing. Um, so there's clearly two different kinds of ways in which man is described as being like God. One is legitimate, the other is illegitimate. It's not a contradiction. They're actually meant to be associated. You can tell because there's this plural, first-person plural used in both cases, used uniquely in both cases. It's not, it's not a typical mode of speech. Uh, and becoming like or as one of us is becoming a god. You become a member of the divine council, and those are described as gods. There's a legitimate way to do this, but you have to be patient. Joseph is patient. Joseph is patient, and thus at the end of the book of Genesis, he has been described by Pharaoh as a man with the wisdom to discern between good and evil from the Spirit of God. And Joseph says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Knowledge of good and evil. He's in Goshen, which is like the Garden of the Lord, Genesis 13. You meant this for evil, God meant it for good. Which means Joseph understands the mode in which God governs the world, which is why he's such a good authority, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. Because Joseph understands how God runs the world and he can imitate it. So that's image and likeness. But what is the man here? Well, God creates man, singular, male and female. Man is a kind of corporate unity. As C.S. Lewis points out, from God's perspective, mankind is a single organism. This is why there's such a thing as original sin, which means it's the corruption 
of death, which comes from Adam, death being a tendency towards disintegration, towards non-existence, and sin being a manifestation in the realm of the will of tendency towards non-existence. Thus, by virtue of us having this corruption from Adam, uh, we have a disposition towards evil, which interacts with and is at war with our disposition towards good, which exists by virtue of our creation in the image of God. Man is a single organism, the human family. Everything that every person does affects the whole. Think of what the Council of Chalcedon says. Christ is consubstantial with the Father. He's of one essence with the Father according to his godhood. He's of one nature. There are three persons subsistent as modes in which that nature exists. And he's consubstantial with man according to his, his uh, manhood. Human nature is also one. The human family in its plural unity is an echo or a reflection of that Trinitarian communion. Why? Let us create man in our image. And it's not an individual man, it's man, male and female. Man is one body. God takes Eve out of Adam's side, doesn't create them side by side, he takes Eve out of Adam's side. And then, by virtue of their mutual knowledge, humans reproduce. This is not a euphemism, as some people say. The conjugal act is the most intimate way in which two human beings might know each other in the context of the family. Adam knew his wife, and the knowledge was so profound that it was the means by which a new human being was created. God knows the world into existence? Well, in the context of the family, the conjugal act is the means by which we can participate and echo that creative knowledge. So the human family is a single organism. That's why it's analogous to a tree. Remember, be fruitful and multiply? Well, humans don't have literal fruit. God created uh, plants in which is their seed on the third day. Well, there's the seed of the woman. Well, last I checked, we didn't have acorns dropping out of our skulls. It's an analogy. It's an echo of language about plants. An, uh, human beings and human organisms and human societies are like trees. Genesis chapter 5. God created, man, God created in the beginning male and female and named them man. Other examples in the New Testament. The seed of Abraham was Christ, was the Messiah. There is a plural unity here. The Messiah is the linchpin by which the whole church is bound together as a single family, which is why the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, is both corporate and individual, both corporate and personal. Paul says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Well, who is it that crushes the devil? It's Christ. The seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. And yet, we see both male and female head crushers. Jael, Judges chapter 5. Most blessed of all women be Jael. What does she do? She crushes the head of Sisera, who is the Canaanite serpent. Note the curse on Canaan, Genesis chapter 9, echoes most closely the curse on the serpent. Both of them are cursed directly. Uh, you have a woman in Judges who drops a millstone from a tower. It crushes the head of Abimelech. Abimelech is a false king, just like the serpent. The devil is a false king, crushes the head. David is the seed of the woman. He's the king, the royal from the royal bloodline. 
The Messiah is described as coming from the line of Judah. It's Genesis chapter 49. It's part of a network of allusions going back to Genesis chapter 3 uh, about the seed of the woman. Those who say that it's not messianic don't know what they're talking about. Uh, The line of Judah is that which produces the Messiah. David is from the line of Judah, so it's through his line that the messianic seed is produced. And David is a head crusher. David shoots Goliath in the forehead with a stone. Remember how stones are key here? The millstone was dropped and crushed the head of Abimelech, the false king. Well, Goliath is challenging the sovereignty of the Lord of hosts. He is killed by head crushing from the true king. Who is King David. The legitimization of the kings of Israel takes place through the head crushing of a serpent. Saul, remember, a king is one who has sovereignty over the land. Sovereignty is established, as we've talked elsewhere, in one way by conquest. But one mode of conquest is creativity. Solomon's mode of conquest, for example, is architectural programs. David's mode of conquest, though, is by warfare, um, which uh, Good warfare in scripture is never described as violence, by the way. Um, as, this isn't meant to prove anything, only to say we should be careful about our language if we take scripture as an absolute authority here. Um, Saul's first test is the defeat of a king called Nakash, which means serpent. Well, David's first test happens in the exact literary position. It's a replay of Saul's calling to the kingship. Uh, in that very spot, David kills Goliath by head crushing. Well, Goliath is a Nephilim. Nephilim is one of the demonic offspring produced by the uh, union of the sons of God, members of the divine council, with the daughters of Adam, Genesis 6. They produce giants. Um, and then in Numbers, when the land is spied out, the Israelites say, um, there are giants in the land. They say this is a land which consumes its inhabitants. Interesting phrase there. Remember, in world cultures, whether you're talking about ancient America or ancient China, it's a trope, or I, I want to say, I'm pretty sure it's in China, but I know it's in Norway, but ancient America or ancient Norway, it's a trope that giants eat people. This is the seed of the serpent in the most literal sense. I think it's a, a demonic sacramental rite. Father Stephen DeYoung has some good stuff on this. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a trope that giants eat people. How? Well, the serpent, thou shalt eat dust. What's dust? From dust you came, to dust you will return. Dust is dead people. The serpent will eat dust. He's going to be placed under the ground. That means in Sheol. Why is he placed in Sheol? Because he's cut off from the affairs of the world. Why is he said to eat dust? Because he eats dead people. Why do people go to the place which was prepared for the devil and his angels? Because the devil eats them. And so you have the trope of giants who consume the land's inhabitants. Um, so you got a plural unity. Sorry for going off on these tangents, but, you know, I, I think at least some of you find the tangents themselves interesting. So... Uh, I kind of do this stuff the way that James Jordan does in his lectures. James Jordan, um, one of the most influential sources for me was listening to his 204 lectures in the book of Revelation. He always go on these tangents. Um, and he went all over the place. It took him years to complete the lecture series, which was once a week. Um, but it, I appreciate all of his tangents because it was a crash course in interpreting the whole Bible. 
know, it was kind of the detailed version of his book Through New Eyes, which I recommend to everybody read. So the seed of Abraham, it's both a family and an individual. The seed of the woman, it's both a family and an individual. It's both Christ and the church, totus Christus, uh, both head and body, and so on and so forth. Okay, so man, as an organism, the man who is created in the image of God is a corporate organism. It is not an individual person, but it is the human family. The human family. And it, man is the image of God according to his expression of the subsistence of the divine nature. And the mode of divine subsistence means the way in which God's activities have their pattern of life. Well, um, divine God subsists in and only in the Trinity. The Trinity is not an accident. God could not have existed except in and through the Trinity. So man's mirroring of the image of God intrinsically contains Trinitarian characteristics. One other interesting point on the plural unity. Well, remember how we have the first person plural. Let us create man. Think about Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Remember how I said that redemption and continuing creation are coextensive. They happen at the same time. Remember how I said that one way in which God redeems is by judgment. Tower of Babel. There's a judgment. No question about it. Nevertheless, the judgment itself is creative. God says, let us go down. The very same language that was used in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, referring, among other things, to the divine council. They're referring specially and prototypically to the Trinity. When God says, let us, it is an announcement that he is about to create humanity in such a way that it mirrors his Trinitarian communion. Thus, male and female, two and one, two modes of personal particularity, one nature. So also, Genesis chapter 11, we're told that the builders of the tower were building a tower and a city. These are two things, that they were of one language and one lip. Okay, this is so, one lip and one language, tower and city. Lip corresponds to tower, because tower is a ladder to heaven, it is a sanctuary, it is a temple. Lip refers to the God you confess, okay? Look at a concordance, look at all the instances of lip, and you will see that I'm correct here, okay? And I got this from James Jordan. This isn't like some brilliant thing I, I invented. Um, David says about other gods, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. Isaiah 19 speaks of the conversion of Egypt and Assyria, the two historic oppressors of Israel. This is a sign of all humanity. Even those who are the most intense enemies of Israel will be converted. When they are united with Israel in worshiping the one God, they are said to have the same lip. Zephaniah chapter 3. God will convert the nations to a pure lip so that they call on the name of the Lord with one voice. Calling on the name of the Lord is linked closely with the word lip. Uh, Unlike our earthly parents, God wants us to give him lip. I, I'm, I'm very sorry, but once I thought of it, I just couldn't not say it. Um, so let's all forget that happened. Um, lip corresponds to tower because it is a sacrificial or sacramental action. Calling on the name of the Lord. Note how it's associated with sacrifice and altars, Genesis 12 and elsewhere. City corresponds with language. City, correspond, city is about culture. Okay? A city 
is the gathering together and the close interrelationship of different sorts of people to each other. Okay, cities are associated with um, you know, places of international gathering, right? So New York City, it's going to have a lot more, you know, New York City is where the UN is. Okay. It's where representatives from many different nations come. If you have immigrants, and I'm not commenting on immigration as policy, either way, um, please don't make any comment about it. Um, if you have immigrants, they will move to the city in general. Uh, city, you know, in New York City, you have like a, uh, you got Chinatown. Okay? You have various um, representations of different national people groups. A city is the gathering together of distinct sorts of people and the interrelationship of them to one another according to the common life of that police. And culture flows from cult. Sacrifice, liturgy, that determines the kind of culture you are, the kind of people that you are, determined by the kind of God that you worship. You become, you, you worship a stiff-necked calf, you become stiff-necked. So the city corresponds to the language. Now, in Christian metaphysical terminology, this corresponds very neatly to person and nature. Nature is that which all mankind shares in common. The three divine persons share a single nature. It is an identical nature. The nature isn't just similar, it is identical. Personhood is the way in which that nature subsists, has its existence. No nature has it exists non-hypostatically. So a person is a particular sort of hypostasis. But a hypostasis is a mode of existence. Okay. So if there is such a thing as a nature, it has to exist in one way or another. It has a particular rhythm to it. There are three divine persons. They share identical nature. But the divinity is expressed in three distinct ways. And it is not that you have personal characteristics which are bolted onto the so-called natural characteristics. It is that the natural characteristics, those qualities which make God God and reveal God as God, they are expressed, they themselves are expressed in three distinct ways. In a way that is fatherly, in a way that is sonly, filial, and a way that is spiritual. The same thing is true of human beings who are of one nature and have a plenitude of personal modes of existence. I'm a unique person, you're a unique person. Our uniqueness is an expression of our humanity. The very fact that we are unique is an expression of the development of the human family. A fetus, at the moment of conception, looks basically identical, if not completely identical, to every other fetus. When the baby is born, it looks pretty similar to every other baby in the hospital. Yeah, there are differences, but it looks pretty similar. As the child grows, they will come to look more and more distinct from other children. Again, this is something I learned from James Jordan. They come to look more and more distinct. And it's not just a matter of their personal appearance. Their life history will shape their personal appearance. And by I say it's not just a matter of you know, the way their face is shaped, but you know their life history, what they eat, what they wear. Their choices come into the equation in the mode in which their humanity is expressed. Clothing. You know, clothing says something about you. Now, nations are distinct modes in which humanity is expressed. Well, clothing is one of the most direct ways in which uh, a person's culture might be expressed. Again, not a political comment, 
don't you dare take it as such or make a comment about it. I'm also not saying I don't think political stuff is important. I just want to say that I think Christianity is more important, and I've chosen to focus on one particular thing on this channel, so please don't try to make it about something else. Okay. I, I've spent a lot of time on the internet, so I know I have to qualify this stuff or else, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Um, where, where was I? Um, oh, yeah. Tower and City, Cult and Culture, uh, Nature and Person. Nature corresponds to lip, because everybody is supposed to call on God with one voice. That is the way in which all human beings are made one. They all call on the same Trinitarian God in the Messianic Age, the conversion of the nations, something we'll talk about in the next part of this video. And then plenitude. God doesn't want an undifferentiated mass. He wants different kinds of people, male and female. Males and female. females are expressed, by the way, in distinct modes of clothing. It's why in Deuteronomy... It says, if you're a woman, don't dress as a man, and if you're a man, don't dress as a woman. Hard to make that not political today, but I'm mentioning it for a theological reason, and I would mention it even if it weren't controversial. Um, don't comment on that. Uh, clothing is an expression of our humanity, the fact that we wear clothes, and the kind of clothes we wear expresses the kind of humanity that we have, or the mode in which our humanity is made manifest. And so... Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, it is a judgment in that the lip of the peoples are scattered. They have one lip beforehand, and it is a false one. They're united around the devil, as it were. While God scatters them, they have different and superficially conflicting pantheons. You know, if they decide to be idolatrous, they're idolaters in conflict with each other, and a house divided against itself cannot stand, meaning the power of the united human family is reduced. God says... Uh, they're one. Nothing they seek will be impossible for them. Not because God isn't sovereign, but because God structured and built the world with this in its programming. So, God must scatter and divide them in order to reduce their collective power. But, when the church subsists in its unity, the whole world comes to believe Jesus is the Messiah, as Jesus says in John chapter 17. And there is a let us statement Genesis 11, because God is creatively extending the human family from being a monolith into being a plenitude of nations. Obviously, there is a relationship here to the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes down, and many languages are spoken, but one lip is spoken. Call on the name of the Lord. Remember how that phrase is associated with lip? Call on the name of the Lord. Why the name? Because the name expresses the character of God. What is the character of God expressed by the name? Exodus 32 to 34. Exodus 4. It is God as faithful to his promises. Calling on the name of the Lord. Peter says, call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he baptizes them. We just discussed this earlier in the video. Why baptism? Because you call on the name of the Lord in baptism, trusting that God will do what he has promised to do in that very sacrament. Thus, Acts 22, Ananias says to Paul, Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The name because the name signifies faithfulness, calling because this is the relation which establishes our trust in God as faithful. Pentecost grants a unity of lip, 
but retains the diversity of language, language signifying culture, culture corresponding to nationhood, city, etc., etc. Interesting tidbit. What is associated with the spirit? Wind. When the day of Pentecost comes, here's a great wind which blows. Now, does Genesis chapter 11 say anything about a great wind? It does not. Yet, there are traditions from around the world, and there is an account in Josephus, that the way the judgment at the Tower of Babel was enacted was that the people went to sleep, and then there was a great gust of wind overnight, which was so great, probably a storm or something, that it knocked over the tower. And when the people woke up, they were woken up by the wind or the storm, but when they woke up, they found they couldn't understand each other. This is not in scripture, yet I believe it is almost certainly historically authentic because you find it, uh, you find traces of it and fairly you know, close representations of that very story, not only in Josephus, but in like Aboriginal Australians and Native Americans all across the world. One of the coolest things out there showing um, you know, this is not a matter of independent origin. This is the same story transmitted by collective memory through the traditions of the human family. The Bible is real. It's real. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons I like this so much is because the connection is obviously typological. Pentecost, Tower of Babel, they have this specific relationship. Zephaniah 3 prophesies Pentecost in terms echoing and reversing aspects of the Tower of Babel. And because wind is so present prominently in both of them, there's a typological connection. And yet the typological connection is not literary because it's not called attention to in Genesis 11. Typology is the pattern of God's activity in the real living world. And it is not a feature of scripture apart from the world. Scripture reveals the world. And this is one of the ways in which we can see that. Okay. Man is uh, fruitful like a growing tree. Uh, we've talked about that a fair bit, but I wanted to put this icon here. It's a cool icon. Note the centrality of the Virgin Mary here. What's the reason for that? Well, uh, trees and gardens are feminine. Gardens are described in feminine terms. Gardens and temples are frequently associated with each other. In the temple and in the Messianic temple of Ezekiel 40 to 48, you have paintings of trees on it. You have in the center of the garden at the top of the holy mountain, you have a spring from which a river of life flows out. Well, in Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 47, in uh, I believe it is Joel 3, um, and in other prophetic texts, you have a river of life that springs up in the Holy of Holies, corresponding to the top of the uh, holy mountain, Mount Eden, and it flows out to water the world. Now, look at the language that is used for architecture. It's feminine language. Look at language that's used for cities. Is it son Zion? No, it's daughter Zion or daughter of Zion, representing the character of the city. Consider Eve herself. God opened Adam, and the word here uh, is usually used for things like opening a door. Or it's he closed, I closed is the one that I know um, uh, is door terminology. Correspond, by the way, to the closing of the door in the ark. And it says God built Eve. God built Eve. That is an architectural word. The next time it is used is in Genesis 4. When, what do you know? Cain builds a city. Cain has a son, and he builds a city after the name of his son. The city is the bride for his son. God has a son, eternally, Jesus Christ. And he builds a city who is the bride of Christ. The city of God is the bride of Christ, is the church. Revelation chapter 21. 
And since gardens and cities are likened to each other, the feminine terminology, ultimately going back to Eve herself, that is characteristic of cities and temples and architectural structures is also characteristic of gardens. And I want to drive this point home, the connection here between gardens and cities, this is not an arbitrary connection or just some weird thing that ancient people did. Okay? We need to keep these associations in our own mind as authentic reflections of the actual and true world. Think about the way that a city develops. Look at New York City today. As it has grown and developed over time, it is a forest. You have these trees, which are growing really tall. Metal trees. You know, we build buildings out of wood. You know, if you live in a wooden house, you live inside a tree. Cities develop like gardens because it's a truly analogous relation in the internal nature of the human being. Mankind is disposed to collectively develop civilization in such a way that it echoes the development of forests or of gardens. That's why God creates Adam. God wants Adam to be the one who creatively extends his work of glorifying and maturing the world. God creates Adam, and then in front of his eyes, he plants a garden. The garden wasn't already there. He does it in front of Adam's eyes, as if to say, I want you to do this. He'll say, guard and cultivate it. Keep this Keep the goodness which is in the garden, but also cultivate it, extend it, glorify it, and also subdue the earth. Go out and extend dominion, gardenify and citify the world. So you see the mother of Jesus here. She's called the garden of God. She's also called the city of God. Um, and you see here various uh, patriarchs and prophets. This icon, I believe, is called the root of Jesse because the human family is a tree. The human family is reborn and summed up through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, which is planted in the world, which revivifies the whole tree. The devil wants to corrupt the tree. The devil wants to make the tree so evil that God himself has to cut it down. Classic satanic tactic. The devil wants um, to get God to do his dirty work, so he'll try to corrupt Israel. Uh, you actually see in the Near East, what's the story about the flood? The story about the flood, the gods wanted to wipe out humanity. Uh, and they were upset when their project failed. This is an echo of the very real fact that the Nephilim incident was an effort by the devil to corrupt the human family such that God had to destroy it and thwart his divine purpose. In the book of Numbers, you have, I believe it's the Midianite women. They uh, are... The means by which Israel whores after Baal. Baal is essentially the liturgical manifestation of the devil. Okay, so a lot more to say as always, but I want to keep moving here. Scripture narrates the creation of this man in the image of God. And by this man, I mean the corporate human family. That's and the narration here is not something which is limited to Genesis 1 to 3. In fact, the whole script, whole of the Bible is the narration of the creation of man in the image of God. Whole of scripture is this. It begins, God created the heavens and the earth. He laid the foundation, or probably more properly, he dug, the, dug around the foundation. 
He laid it with the coming of Christ, Christ who is the chief cornerstone. Book of Revelation, it ends with the construction, the city of God, the glorification of the world as the bride of Christ, wherein God dwells with man in totality. And from beginning to end, this is a single creation story. And God creates liturgically, or more precisely, the liturgy reflects the pattern of God's own activity because it is the means by which we enter into that activity. The liturgy is the means by which we enter into the divine council. Divine council is just a modern term for what we call the communion of saints. That's why we say uh, that the saints and angels are worshiping with us in the divine liturgy. From beginning to end, the scriptures are narrating a liturgy. Begins with God's liturgical and formalized and rhythmic speech. And let's not forget that the preeminent liturgical rite of Israel, the Day of Atonement, is a reenactment by a redemption of the cosmos. And the Day of Atonement has Noachic covenant correspondence in the so-called year rite, present in China, present in, in uh, Babylon, present in many ancient cultures. And I believe it goes back to an original tradition given to Noah, by which the world is redeemed, recreated by reenactment of the creation. Reenactment? Hey, that's why theaters are connected to temples in the Hellenistic world and other parts of antiquity. These two things, which we imagine to be so distinct, are actually intimately connected. Theaters are places where an event is reenacted. When people dress up as priests and they put on vestments, they're dressing up as different figures. The priest is an icon of Christ. It's an imitation of Christ by participation in Christ so that we can have our glorification in Christ. And we begin with a liturgical act, with the Spirit coming down, with uh, the creation of the world and the book of Revelation. Heaven is opened, that very heaven which constitutes the first thing that God creates, that very heaven which is manifest by the Spirit of God in Genesis 1. Well, Revelation says a door is opened in heaven, and then we see a heavenly liturgy from beginning to end. And we're actually seeing here the heavenly perspective, the God's eye perspective on the history of the apostolic age, so that it is a key in interpreting the providence of God in general. Okay, so uh, we are at two hours. Uh, so obviously I'm not going to make it any longer. Uh, thank you for those who finished. Um, I hope that you got stuff out of it. Um, personally, I, I feel like the video today was particularly, you know, you know, I was particularly excited about this subject. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I can share some of that excitement with you um, and help you to see what I've seen, which is that Christianity, you know, is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale um, or it's only a fairy tale in that fairies really exist. Ooh, uh, point being, the world really is enchanted. Things that we've taken for granted, things that we've given up hoping might be true are true. And the world is filled and permeated and suffused with divine purpose. And God has given us Christ so that we might partake of him, so that our eyes might be opened to see the glory of God, which fills all things. So we'll continue to talk about this in uh, the next video in this series. Before I get to the next video, I do want to finish my apophatic theology series. There should be one more installment in that. Um, 
But if you enjoyed this video, don't forget to like, subscribe, share with those whom you think might be interested, and consider, if you're financially able, uh, becoming a patron. First uh, premium content should be coming uh, either late Friday or early Saturday. It'll be the interview with my brother on why he returned to Christianity, something which I'm very excited about, a big answer to prayer. So thank you so much for listening. Have a good day.